I think the 1619 Project airs grossly in painting with too broad of a brush. Yeah, all the founders are evil racists who supported slavery and didn't care about enslaved persons, and it's just false. As you proceed into the 19th century, you then have the abolitionist movement, which is almost solely a Christian movement. Christians motivated by their faith to end this evil, horrible practice. Welcome to the Liberty Exchange. My name is Jonathan Fortier, and my guest today is Mark David Hall. Mark is professor in Regent University's Robertson School of Government, Director of Religious Liberty in the States, and a senior fellow at the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. He is also a distinguished scholar of Christianity and public life at George Fox University, associated faculty at the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University, and a senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. Professor Hall earned a BA in political science from Wheaton College and a PhD in government from the University of Virginia. Mark has written, edited, or co-edited a dozen books, including titles such as The Forgotten Founders on Religion and Public Life, published by the University of Notre Dame Press in 2009, Faith in the Founders of the American Public, published by Oxford in 2014, and Roger Sherman and the Creation of the American Republic, again with Oxford in 2013, to name just a few. Mark's latest work, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans, was published this year by Fidelis Press. Mark and I have a wide-ranging conversation about the role of Christianity in the American founding. We discuss the ways in which Christian belief has been undervalued or misrepresented in early America. We explore the democratic and republican spirit of the early Puritans, the importance of consent in political organization, the Protestant impulse to resist tyranny, and the way that deism may have influenced our ideas of early American religious belief. We also talk about the regional religious differences in early America and explore how religious minorities, like the Quakers, were treated by the Puritan founders. Mark provides an authoritative overview of the link between Christian thought and how the Puritan founders defended religious equality and the important role Christians played in fighting the institution of slavery. All this and more with our guest, Professor Mark Hall. Mark, we're so happy that you're able to join us for a conversation uh, on the Liberty Exchange. Thank you so much for having me. As you know, this month, uh, we're putting together a series of articles, videos, and podcast interviews that are oriented around the major themes of the holiday period. And these include fraternity, benevolence, charity, to name a few. We're also interested in ideas or practices that point to what we're calling the higher things in our lives. So these might include themes such as the sacred, the holy, the divine, the transcendent, or simply those things that aspire to be more than the material and the utilitarian. And one of the many reasons that we're interested in talking with you is uh, that you've spent so much time thinking carefully about the role of Christian belief in the American founding. And our timing is doubly fortunate in that this year you've come out with yet another book titled Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land, How Christianity Has Advanced Freedom and Equality for All Americans. So I thought perhaps we could begin with having you outline you know, what your goals were in writing this most recent book that comes at the end of a long line of 10 or 12 other books about the role of Christian belief in the American founding. So this most recent book, I was particularly interested in what seems to me to be a pretty dominant narrative in popular literature 
like the 1619 Project and too many scholar, scholarly works that say says in the American context, Christianity has often been, or maybe is almost always, a force of repression and oppression. Use uh, Christians appeal to the Bible to defend slavery and Jim Crow legislation and laws banning marriage between a white person and a black person. And I have to acknowledge that, of course, Christianity has been used in this way. But it seems to me there's another story that needs to be told, that from the Puritans to the present day, Christians have oftentimes drawn from their faith, drawn from the Christian scriptures to advance liberty and equality for all citizens, and not just for themselves, but for others. And so in this book, I highlight those stories. And hopefully, um, again, I would hope it's uplifting and perhaps even inspiring for my fellow believers today to continue. We obviously haven't reached a state where liberty and equality for all citizens in America is perfectly protected. And I would hope to motivate my fellow believers to pursue those things today. Yeah, you raise some of the observations about the Puritans, like Mencken's observation that a Puritan is a person that somewhere believes that someone is having a good time. I'm paraphrasing and mangled the quotation, but you also point to the notion that Puritans were virtue enforcers in a sense. But alongside that, you observe that Puritans uh, were committed to so many different elements that we think of as inextricably entwined with the early republic. Maybe you could just outline some of the ways in which they were committed to republican ideals early on. Yeah, thank you for that. So yeah, the pilgrims and the Puritans who followed them are products of the 17th century, and so we should not expect to see 21st century Democrats in many respects, they're similar to their brethren in England and France and just everywhere. It's assumed that the rulers would play some role in advancing their understanding of true Christianity. Dissenters oftentimes are not tolerated, and there's oftentimes extreme hierarchies at play. The notable thing about the, the Puritans and the pilgrims who preceded them is really the um, remarkably democratic institutions they created, um, or Republican institutions. You had widespread male um, suffrage. You had widespread male literacy, almost universal male literacy. The um, Puritans looking to the Bible as a guide revised their laws. You could be put to death in England for literally hundreds of crimes. In, in New England, those number of crimes was reduced to something like 17. Some of these, uh, it strikes us as very, very harsh that you could be put to death for witchcraft. But of course, everywhere throughout the European world, you could be put to death for witchcraft. And in fact, the Puritans put in place legal protection, so far fewer people were um, were tried as witches or put to death as witches in America than virtually anywhere else. Again, you have a host of legal reforms. You have a host of educational reforms. You have the um, really some of the, the the strongest rule of law that we've ever seen. The legal codes were printed and distributed so that you didn't have magistrates just kind of making things up as they went along. So I think you can look to the Puritans and people like David D. Hall, no relation, Michael Winship and others have, have made this point, and I'm just simply distilling their work, that really because they looked to the Bible as their guide, um, they created some of the most Republican and equal institutions, political institutions that the world had ever seen to date. Early in, in your book, you make reference to the Mayflower Compact, which um, I think is very interesting. And you mentioned that this is an example of the important role of consent in political organization. Is that something that characterized much of the, the early Puritan movement was consent-based political order? 
Absolutely, it did. And let me take a step back, and I'll um, mention my book, Roger Sherman and the Creation of the American Republic. One of the things I argue in this book, and again, this argument is not distinct and unique to me, but I contend that within the Reformed tradition, that is the, um, the Protestantism broadly, which began in 1517, but then especially within the Calvinist tradition of John Calvin and the followers of Calvin, you see the development of almost every idea that we usually think of as a liberal idea. The idea that individuals bear rights, that they can overthrow tyrants, that government should be by the consent of the government. You see this in Wendicia, Contras Tyrannos, and elsewhere. The Puritans um, were steeped in this. And so when they came to America, you're right, the pilgrims, what, what the first thing they did before they got off the ship, they came together and covenanted among themselves and agreed to set up a government based on the consent of the governed. One of the striking things about the Mayflower Compact is the pilgrims were, of course, separatist Puritans. There were non-separatist Puritans on board the Mayflower, and they were allowed to join in the Mayflower Compact. So the separatists could have just kept it for their little religious group, but they made it a bit broader. And so this is the Mayflower Compact, I point out, is, is important, not because it was like one thing, but because it stands for something that was done all the time. You had um, you know, all sorts of towns would come together and make these sorts of compacts. Churches would make these sorts of compacts. Yes, yeah, so a government by the consent of the governed. And if I can speak a minute to the congregational form of government, think about what's going on here. You don't have a hierarchy like you have within the Roman Catholic Church. You have the local congregation making decisions for itself. So the pastor dies. We need a new pastor. What do we do? Well, we you know look around at various possibilities. We consider and discuss person A, B, or C, we um, argue about it, and then we vote on it. It sounds a lot like democracy, doesn't it? And I think these ecclesiastical ways of governing themselves spilt over into the political sphere. So you had the, the Puritans were having elections all the time, every six months. In a place like Connecticut, literally everyone is being elected by the people, the members of the lower house, members of the upper house, and the governor. Um, eventually, after the Glorious Revolution, you get a, a royally appointed governor down in Massachusetts. But still, at the lower level, you have all this democracy going on all the time. And I think this goes a long way to explaining um, the war for American independence, See, especially in New England, but really throughout America. Americans had a long 150 years of experience governing themselves. And so when Parliament started saying, hey, we're going to govern you, even though you don't consent um you don't send any representatives to, to, to Parliament, the New England colonies especially, but really Americans from north to south, said no way. That's not the way our constitutional order works. Yeah, this is a fascinating dimension of the early American experiment. There are other perspectives on Christianity and political authority that perhaps we could explore just briefly. And that strain of reasoning or that history suggests that Christians were more in favor of the status quo, that the authority, the political authority somehow had sanctioned because it existed. And so there was a general tendency to to not endorse rebellion against political authority. Is that associated with other strains of Christian belief more than it is with the Puritans? Or is that just another interpretation of Protestant and Puritan thought? Well, I'll focus in on um, the question of resisting tyrannical political authority first, and we can go elsewhere if you want. So the church for about 12, 1300 years said Romans 13, 1 means kind of what it says, that Christians have to submit themselves to the governing authorities. 
No, you got a few thinkers like John Salisbury, who's Roman Catholic, who starts kind of toying around with the idea of tyrannicide. But this really doesn't go much of anywhere within Catholic thought in this era. John Calvin, however, and really all the reformers, almost right away, if you go to his Institutes on the Christian Religion, he is crystal clear that inferior magistrates have the responsibility of resisting a superior magistrate who becomes tyrannical. And so you can imagine if you have a king or an emperor who becomes tyrannical, the, the lords would have an obligation to rise up and overthrow him. Now, sometimes people act as if John Calvin is the beginning and the end of Calvinist political thought, but he's not. Even as Calvin is writing his Institutes on the Christian Religion, you have John Knox up in, uh, up in Scotland arguing something more vigorous, that the people themselves may resist a tyrannical authority. And these ideas get developed within the Protestant, especially Calvinist tradition. So thinkers like Ponet, the author of Winticae Conscious Tyrannus, um, Buchanan, and others, long before Locke ever pens the second treatise, are making a robust argument that inferior magistrates and often and perhaps sometimes even the people themselves have a right to resist tyrannical authority. Now, this is particularly relevant in the American context because as late as 1776, about 98% of Americans of European descent are Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, a handful of Jews in four or five cities. And of these Protestants, up to 75% of them are Calvinist or, or reasonably called Calvinist. So they're steeped in this. In the book, I include a couple of great quotes um, by John Adams saying, basically, we owe everything. He basically says, well, I don't agree with all those Calvinists on the metaphysical points, by which he means broader theological points. Um, but with respect to this doctrine of resisting tyrannical authority, without them, our nation never would have come into being. So yeah, I think the, um, the, the Protestants and Calvinists absolutely embraced this notion, and it made a huge difference in the American context. It seems to me that a lot of people don't appreciate that early history and the degree to which the founding debates and documents are indebted to the Christian tradition. Do you think that is partly due to the fact that there are some giants in the American founding like Jefferson that tended to be more deist in their belief? And so the founding became associated more with a deist perspective or a deist orientation rather than what might have well have been the, the dominant Calvinist Protestant orientation of the founders. I think you're on to a very important point there. So the book before this one was entitled, Did America Have a Christian Founding? And what I do in that book is I set up every chapter with literally 12 to 15 quotations. And the very first substantive chapter is on the question, um, were any of America's founders deist? And I, I, I quote about 18 scholars who say at least most or many of America's founders were deists. Now, what they do, and by deism, of course, what they mean, and they define it this way themselves, is a God who creates the universe and then basically moves away from it. So God doesn't intervene in human affairs, right? The clockmaker God. And they oftentimes reject other doctrines that they deem to be irrational, um, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement. But in any case, all these books, literally all of them, always work in this way. The founders will look at Ben Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton, sometimes an Ethan Allen or someone else might make their way into it. And then they will generalize from this handful of Americans and say, well, look, these folks are, are, are deist or at least not Orthodox Christian, and they represent the founders. 
So I do a couple of things in the book. First of all, I show that there is actually no good reason to conclude that Washington, Hamilton, or Madison were deist by any definition. Um, there's just no good. No, it's, it's probably an accurate assessment to call Jefferson and Franklin that. I also suggest, though, even if all of them were deists, this is an incredibly unrepresentative sample. Uh, Franklin spent over half of the last 35 years of his life in, in Europe. Um, Jefferson, of course, traveled extensively in Europe, as did John Adams. This is in an era where almost no one travels to Europe or spends much time there. All of these founders are Anglican. Remember what I said earlier, about 75% of Americans are recently called Protestants, only about 15% Anglican. And again, I, I think very unrepresentative. And so if we can turn our eyes from you know these brilliant people who must be studied, right? I, I love reading and teaching Jefferson and in the others. But if we're interested in the broader political theology of even if we just limit ourselves to the political class, the sort of people who are in the legislatures, the other Americans who are in the Philadelphia Convention, the people who served in the first federal Congress, what you see is far more evidence of Orthodox Christianity. And even some founders that um, you know not, might not appear to be as pious as, as others, someone like Ben Franklin, I think you can still point to ways in which he was influenced by his Puritan heritage, if I could put it that way. That's not exactly using Puritan accurately, but he definitely came out of this this milieu. Right. Yeah. So many of these early debates in America were taking place while the 17th century rebellions were underway in the UK and the the Puritan Revolution and and um, the English Civil War. Did those events and the debates and the various pamphlets that were being written, I'm thinking of figures like Toland and Tyndale and others, was that informing some of the early discussion of the formation of the political order in early America? Well, I think for sure those ideas were there, right? And people who think that somehow John Locke invented the right to revolt against tyrannical authority, need to recognize his book comes out after the English Civil War, right? So you have these Puritans in England attempting to purify the church and eventually going to war in order to do so and teaming up with Parliament against the crown. And so these ideas are there. Um, you ha after the, the, the tyrannicide, you have John Cotton preaching a sermon in New England, praising that. And when the um, interrogum fell, you had some of those who had killed the king who fled to New England and were hidden out there. There's a very important sermon preached in 1749, I think, by Jonathan Mayhew, where he it's an election day sermon, where he reminds the Massachusetts legislature of the duty to resist tyrannical authority. So yeah, these ideas are just absolutely there. Um, and, and they're prevalent in New England. But by the time you get to the 1776 or so, you got a lot of Scotch-Irish down in, in the American South and Pennsylvania. And so they really are everywhere, which again, there are something like 50 colonies of the British Empire. And Parliament was doing what it was doing in ways that affected all of them. It was primarily in America that you have massive, massive pushback. And I would attribute a lot of that to this, uh, this reformed heritage of many, many Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned the heterogeneous nature of religious affiliation across the US in later years. Do you think that comes to create strong differences culturally across the country uh, in, in the years that followed after the initial Puritan migration to New England? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I, I have a, a blast. My friend Daniel Dreisbach and I edited a book, The Sacred Rights of Conscience, which is as big as a phone book, has almost every document you would want it, to discuss religious liberty, church-state relations in America from the Puritans up until about 1832 or so. And I just love lead, 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 leading students through documents from the early colonies coming from Massachusetts Bay, influenced by Congregationalists, by Reformed Christians, Pennsylvania, founded by Quakers, right? And then you get down to the Anglican South, and you see um, a number of similarities, but some distinctives, um, for sure, especially with respect to the Society of Friends. As you know, they have a variety of, um, uh, of ways of interpreting the Bible that most Christians don't accept, right? Um, they take really quite literally Matthew 5, where it says to love your enemy and turn the other cheek, and so they're pacifists. And they also refuse to swear oaths, although they don't mind affirming them. And so you can certainly see ways in which these convictions um, are manifest in the Pennsylvania's earliest laws, where they are not in uh, Massachusetts Bay or Virginia, both of which incidentally banned Quakers. They said, you are not welcome here, um, as they did with Roman Catholics. And so, yeah, definitely there's some ways in which these manifestations of Christianity um, came to it came to impact the laws, and of course later social movements. It was uh, members of the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers, who were the first strong abolitionists in America, drawing from their faith to say, look, this, this practice of chattel slavery is unbiblical, it's immoral, it must be ended now. Quakers have a duty to free any slaves you own. If you don't, you'll be read out of meeting. And then they founded these abolitionist societies to end slavery in, um, in the various states. Yeah, you make reference to and discuss the way that the Quakers were um, banished from Boston when they had arrived, some of the early Quakers, and you highlight the fact that they were banished because they were seen as disruptive to the social order, which um, is in some ways quite funny when you think about Quakers and trying to imagine how they could possibly be disruptive to the social order. But I suppose um, some, of these, some of these beliefs that you're referring to would have been very unusual in an otherwise homogeneous Puritan town like Boston. So let me say this as a birthright Quaker who taught at a Quaker school for 20 years. The early Quakers really were very, very disruptive. Uh, basically, a Quaker distinctive is that every Christian has the inner light where Jesus can speak basically directly to us. Now, this inner light won't contradict scripture, but it led early Quakers to do things like interrupt Anglican services, to go in and make fun of the Anglican ministers, uh, John you know, going around naked and preaching and this sort of thing. Now, over, at, after the first generation, these types kind of mellowed out and they became more respectable, as oftentimes happens when maybe a sect turns into a um, denomination. Uh, but you still had, for instance, a Quaker refusal to, to swear oaths, even after they had kind of settled down. And this is why, incidentally, they were banned in the early colonies. You always see a reference to the bloodbath that became Munster, which was an Anabaptist um, movement, not a Quaker movement, but in the Puritan mind and Virginia minds, they, they associated them. But even after they kind of settled down, they refused to swear oaths. Now, this is in an era where you are asked to swear all the time. When a new regime comes to power, you have to swear fealty to the new king. Well, the Quakers would say, we can't do that. You would also have to swear in order to testify in court. They refused to do that. And they had to swear in order to hold political office. And they refused to do that. 
And so literally hundreds and hundreds of Quakers, probably thousands, were thrown into jail in England for refusing to swear oaths, and literally hundreds of them died. And so I just say that by way of context. We, we can't just think the Puritans were somehow uh, mean-spirited theocrats who couldn't put up with the Quakers where everyone else could. And many more died in England than died in, in Massachusetts Bay. So Massachusetts Bay banned Quakers, it's true, uh, because they were seen as disruptive. Famously, of course, we have several Quakers that were hanged on Boston Commons, but it's important to note that they showed up in Boston. I think there's three of them. And the Boston authorities said, you can't be here. You're banished. Leave now. They were given time to go. They left. Then they turned right around and came back. And the, and the Massachusetts authorities said, look, we really weren't kidding. Um, and they put them on the gallows. The two men were hung, hanged, but Mary Dyer. The people said, oh, please let her go. She's a woman. They said, okay, fine. We'll let her go. You're banished, Mary Dyer. Go away. Don't come back. She leaves Massachusetts Bay, turns right around and comes back. And at this point, they say, okay, um, we're going to hang you. So that's horrible. And I don't think anyone should have been hanged for their faith, right? And so we can be critical of the Puritans for doing this. But again, I think the context is important. The Puritans had about as much religious toleration as anywhere in the world. And like other places in the world, Quakers, who hold very idiosyncratic beliefs, um, ran into trouble with the authorities, as they did in England, as they did in Virginia, and as they did in Massachusetts Bay. So we can properly condemn the, the, the Puritans, to be sure. But again, we should not do a wholesale condemnation based on this fairly isolated incident. And incidentally, after... Um, into the 1690s, Quakers were protected as a matter of law by the Quaker Act in Parliament, and most colonies um, started started protecting them as well. I'll mention the Quaker Act real quickly. So in England, the Quaker Act said, okay, we know there are these people called Quakers that can't swear oaths, and so we will let them affirm some oaths, loyalty oaths and oaths to, to testify in, in civil trials but not criminal trials, because that's so important. We aren't going to let them testify in criminal trials. And Quakers could not hold positions in Parliament until 1832, when um, they were finally permitted to affirm oaths. And I say that by way of contrast, because by the time you get to the mid-18th century in America, I think it's every colony permits Quakers to affirm rather than swear oaths. And our Constitution, of course, contains this baked into um, every oath requirement. It, it clearly says, Article 2, for instance, the president shall swear or affirm. So again, this just shows that America, I think, is is, is on the leading edge of, of advancing religious liberty for all. Yeah. I mean, we have to remember that in the UK, um, the Test Act, uh, the Anglican Test Act, prohibited uh, many people of, of other faiths from uh, holding political office or attending Oxford or Cambridge. And, and so there were also other very restrictive religious exclusions um, elsewhere in the world. Is it easy for a non-Quaker to understand the difference between swearing an oath and affirming an oath? You know, it, ironically, given their teaching of the inner light, in this case, they're just being biblical literists. I, I, I can't quote the exact verse, but Jesus says, you know, swear not at all, but let your yea be yea and your yea nay be nay. And so they basically say Jesus meant what he said, swear not at all. What's so hard to understand? But I think in their minds, affirming something is not the same as swearing it. And so they can, they're willing to affirm, um, to tell the truth, the whole truth, 
they don't like saying, so help me God, because that uh, they take to be a violation of what I think the fourth commandment. So Mark, your book also addresses the importance of equality in the context of the early Christian founding. Perhaps you could just say a few things about that and uh, the way that uh, Christian belief tended to reinforce that idea in early America. Sure. So one of the arguments I make is that religious liberty advances, especially in England and America, because primarily because of Christians making biblical and theological arguments. So I have in mind people here like Roger Williams of Rhode Island, William Penn of England and kind of an Amer- of America, Elisha Williams, Isaac Bacchus, and others. And you see these arguments being made throughout the late 17th and well throughout the 18th century. And I contend that these arguments were successful. They were changing people's minds. Now, this is very different than the way relig- the advance of religious liberty is usually taught. Oftentimes, it's either we were in, in religious oppression, and then the Enlightenment came along and saved us, or Christians got tired of killing themselves, so they just made a prudential agreement to love and let live. What I think you can trace in a pretty powerful way, I do this in the Christian founding book and in the most recent one to a certain degree, that it's actually these Christian arguments that are most persuasive. So that by the time you get to the late 18th century, the colonies and then states are doing a pretty good job of protecting religious liberty for all. The government's not trying to compel people to to um, worship in particular ways. It's not trying to compel particular beliefs. The U.S. Constitution, we already mentioned, has a religious accommodation baked into it so that Quakers and Mennonites and Brethren and other Christians who refuse to swear oaths can hold political office. And this is a tiny minority of the people. Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, of course, bans religious tests for office. And so this is, again, a recognition that one's religious belief, one's denomination, shouldn't keep one from holding political office. One of my favorite letters, I, I love quoting, I quote it all the time, George Washington's letter to the Hebrew synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, about 1790, where he says, it is now in America no longer that toleration is spoken of, but every individual has a natural right to the free exercise of religion. So by the time we get to the late 18th century, we're really beginning to um, have a, a far greater degree of religious equality in America. Those states with established churches are tending to disestablish them or move to a system of plural or multiple establishments. New England holds out the longest, it's true. Massachusetts keeps its established church until 1832. But the trend is definitely towards recognizing that one religion shouldn't be favored over the other, and all citizens should be treated equally with respect to their religious commitments. Yeah, fascinating. I think this is also an important part of the emergence of much of the thought you see uh, in um, late 17th and early 18th century England and the rise of art forms like the novel that tended to be democratizing, to see individual lives as having importance. And the, um, the, the proper subject of art wasn't simply nobles and others that had high station in life. And so there was a democratizing ethos that was part of the, the, the Christian experience in general. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's a great connection. Of course, by the time we get to the 19th century, um, you know, more and more people in America anyway are able to vote. I think England has some major reforms around 1833. 
Um, of course, there's limits, right? When I say people get to vote, I'm talking about males. It's you know, hardly anywhere that females get to vote. And so, again, we shouldn't say, hooray, these folks have become 21st century liberal Democrats. They aren't, but they're going in the right direction. And I think we can recognize that and um, I at least celebrate it. I guess no conversation about equality and uh, the American founding is going to be complete unless we address the issue of slavery. The um, early founders, of course, many of, of them were slave owners, and the founding has come under particular criticism in recent years. Many have argued that the founding was inextricably tied up with the institution of slavery. I'm thinking of the 1619 Project and, and other similar works. And this was or is not only a criticism of the early founding, but I think many critics argue that this was inextricably bound up with Christian belief as well. And so do you want to say something about this issue and and, um, and how we're to think about this carefully and understand the role of Christian belief in slavery? Sure. Yeah, I have a chapter in this, of course, and I'll, I'll just make a few comments based on it. First of all, we need to recognize that the vast majority of white Americans never owned an enslaved person. But members of the political class tended to be better off, so more materially better off, and so we're more likely to own an enslaved person. Here again, I think our focus on certain founders, a Washington, a Jefferson, a Madison, um, kind of give a misleading impression, right? These are Southern aristocrats. They lived in ways that most Americans did not, right? So we have to recognize that to begin with. Uh, we need to recognize that um, Americans in the late 18th century were starting to recognize the evils of slavery. And so some founders did own slaves, but they voluntarily freed them. John Dickinson, at one point, the largest slave owner of Delaware, voluntarily freed all of his slaves. Ben Franklin owned five slaves throughout his lifetime, eventually came to the conclusion that it was immoral, freed the last of them, and became president of the Pennsylvania Manumission Society. George Washington freed his slaves in his will. James Wilson of Philadelphia owned one slave whom he voluntarily manumitted. And so you're having founders that are making real you know, decisions that have an f- impact on their bottom line um, to get out of this evil, vile institution. Almost no founder defended slavery as a positive good. That really wouldn't come about in America until the 1820s. Most talked about it as if it was a necessary evil that we would like to get rid of. And a number of states did get rid of it. Between 1776 and 1806, eight states either abolished slavery or put it on the road to extinction. Now, we're talking about the Mid-Atlantic and New England states where slavery was never as important economically. But still, we are talking about freeing something like 100,000 people critically important, I think. Um, When we look at the debates in Philadelphia in 1787, everyone had bad things to say about slavery, including a lot of slave owners. And and yet there was a question, well, what can we do about slavery? If we have a constitution that bans slavery, prohibits slavery and slavery, it clearly will not be ratified in the American South. These debates are going back and forth, back and forth. In the middle of the summer, three delegates leave Philadelphia and go to New York where they participate in the Confederation Congress. This Congress then passes the Northwest Ordinance, that wonderful ordinance for governing the territory that later became the states of Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, parts of Minnesota. At least one of those delegates came back to Philadelphia. And so the founders in Philadelphia were aware of the Northwest Ordinance. Now, this is particularly important because the Northwest Ordinance prohibits slavery in the territories or the states of the old Northwest. And so from the opponents of slavery's perspective, you um, 
And slavery is on the way out. The northern states are eliminating it, the mid-Atlantic states, and we aren't going to allow it to expand. And we should mention as well that some founders, I, I alluded to this, but just to be a little more pointed, John Adams never owned an enslaved person. He wrote the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780 that was eventually used to end slavery in the state. Roger Sherman of Connecticut never owned an enslaved person. He wrote the manumission statute in Connecticut that put slavery on the road to extinction there. And I give other examples of that. So again, I think the 1619 project errs grossly in painting with a, a, a too broad of a brush, as, as you suggested. And I think it's a fair characterization of, 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 the, of the project. Yeah, all the founders are evil racists who supported slavery and didn't care about enslaved persons. And it's just false. And this is just a founding era. As you proceed into the 19th um, century, you then have the abolitionist movement, which is almost solely a Christian movement. Christians motivated by their faith to end this evil, horrible practice. But to your point, you did certainly have Christians that defended slavery with biblical arguments and theological arguments. Again, usually not as a positive good until we get to the 1820s, um, where for the first time you really have Southern political leaders and Southern ministers defending slavery is something that's actually a good thing. But that comes much later, of course. Yeah. And of course, the movement in the UK was also driven largely by Christians that managed to get the ear of Wilberforce and other figures like that. And those folks were looked to as as laudable examples by the American abolitionists. So there, And of course, you have these um, congresses in England where Americans would come over and people would strategize together to end slavery in America and in else, other countries, right? Slavery is a worldwide institution. Let me give you a statistic that actually comes from the 1619 Project of the 12 or so million Africans stolen from Africa and brought to the New World, only 4% were taken to British North America. 96% were taken to the Caribbean and South America. And again, I say that not to excuse, you know, one stolen African is too many stolen Africans, but to think of this as somehow a uniquely American problem, it's not. It's a worldwide problem. And we could even talk about the number of Africans stolen and taken to the Middle East, which I believe is higher than the number taken to the New World. Again, not to excuse. I don't want anyone to think I'm excusing this evil, horrible practice. It's just a call for appreciating the historical context. Yeah, sure. Yeah. One of the charges against libertarians or classical liberals, I'll use the terms interchangeably, is that um, there is no totalizing vision for life and political life in particular, that the state is, in a sense, a minimalist framework within which we pursue our own idea of the good. Do you think that that is, uh, in, in some sense, at risk of not providing an, enough of a vision of of a uh, enlightened freedom, if you will, if there isn't some sort of religious foundation for action in the polity? Yeah, boy, that's yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. Let me reference first a um, sermon that John Cotton gave in early America. He was asked, should Christians attempt to create a Christian society? And his answer is very nuanced. He says, it depends. If you're a Christian in Turkey, you just keep your head down, right? You don't really try to do much of anything. Um, if you're a Christian in England, you're dealing with, you know, decades and you know, centuries of tradition and laws and institutions. And so you might try, but you probably won't do too much. But if you have an experiment like we have in New England, where a bunch of like-minded people come together and create a new society, then by all means, you have laws and, and you institute, create institutions and laws 
that um, advanced human flourishing is understood by Christians. And some of these laws, I think even libertarians would agree with. For instance, it is a requirement in New England that parents teach their children how to read. It's a requirement, right? And um, it's a requirement that towns of certain size create a grammar school for the study of Greek and Latin grammar, which would then enable students to go to Harvard. And you have a law in Connecticut, one of my favorite laws, is every family must possess a catechism and a Bible. And if you cannot afford one, one will be given to you by the selectmen of the town. It's, I have to say, part of me sort of appreciates these sorts of experiments in small consensual communities. But if we fast forward to the present day, America is not a small consensual community, right? We are a huge, diverse country. And um, maybe 64% of Americans identify as Christians, but a a large percentage of those don't bother to go to church or things like that. And I say that not to be judgmental, just to say they aren't particularly Christians that take their faith seriously. So in this large, multi, um, very heterogeneous context, I am very skeptical of using the power, let's just focus on the national government, to promote human flourishing from a Christian perspective. In fact, I suspect that um, if the national government got more into that business than it already is, it would be passing laws that are profoundly um, detrimental to Christian flourishing as I understand it. So that's why I'm basically a liberty-friendly conservative. I, I, I think it's just an error to want to turn to the national government to fix the moral problems or the religious problems in America. No, there are some people, um, Protestant, Christian nationalists, Catholic integralists, that want to do that. Um, you know, they want to take over somehow the power of the national government and use it to create um, Christendom again. I, I, th- I think that's just a pipe dream. And I think there's far better things we can do um, with our time than try to advocate for those sorts of very unlikely um, possibilities. Yeah. And that drive is, in some sense, fundamentally opposed to the early spirit of toleration and freedom of conscience that founded the country, um, that really was trying to advocate f- for the necessity of free choice and free association. No, that's exactly right. So um, we mentioned a little bit about the advance of religious liberty in America. By the time you get to the late 18th century, there really is a robust understanding that people should be free to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and to act on that conscience wherever possible. And there's even a recognition that really we don't want the government running the church. And so in 1787, a year after the passage of the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty, the, the, the General Assembly in Virginia got out of the business of telling the Anglican Church how to govern itself. Now, think about that. Does anyone think it's a good idea for the national government or even state governments to tell a church how to govern itself or how to practice the, the, the um, sacraments or this sort of thing? It just seems to be a horrible idea. So in this sense, I don't like the phrase separation of church and state because it's often misused or misconstrued, but it seems clear the church and the state are separate institutions with their own roles and responsibilities, and we're far better off when we don't have the state trying to govern the church as both the Christian nationalist and the Catholic integralist would have it. It's just a horrible idea, I think. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll wrap up with a question about Christmas now in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. Christmas comes at the darkest time of the year, and so the celebration seems to me to be very much about the possibility of light and um, all those things associated with with light, goodness, and, and so forth. And these possibilities come when things are most dark. Do you agree with this understanding of 
the Christmas holiday period? Can you think of prospects of, of light that we can look to at this time of year? Boy, that's, yeah, that's a deep question. Um, I would say for me as a, as a Christian and uh, for my family, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus Christ. God became man, um, eventually to die for the sense of humanity. And so that's a focus, that's a hope. And, um, you know, that's, that, that, that's my personal hope. In general, I tend to be an optimist. So, you know, in America right now, our politics is just horrendous. It seems like the darkest of the darkest nights uh, on both sides, right? J- just horrendous. Uh, but we've seen horrendous times before. And um, you know, so I'm optimistic that we can muddle through and hopefully get back to a, um, a, a saner approach to politics. Ideally, from my perspective, one that has a far more constrained state because I just don't trust states to do the right thing. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, Mark, thanks very much for joining us on Liberty Exchange. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Liberty Exchange, a project of libertarianism.org. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Fortier and produced by Landry Ayers. Special thanks to Mark David Hall and the entire staff at Libertarianism.org, including Pericles Niarchos, Grant Babcock, Allison Yaffe, and Paul Meany. If you like this and want more, you can visit us online at Libertarianism.org.